This is Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Welcome back to the show, folks. This is your host, John Gower, and I am joined today by an actor, an educator, a musician, a man of words, as you'll very soon come to understand, a choir director, a dancer, a man of masks, and a man of the stage. Welcome to Near Dark Radio, Riley Bowers. Hi. How are you doing today? Um, confused that you called me a dancer. Everything else I'm okay with, but... You were dancing the entire, <laughs> the entire time backstage. Okay, that doesn't make me a dancer. Well, you're better at it than most white people I know. Thank you. It's not saying much, though. No, that's not. <laughs> um, Riley is a first-comer on this program, first-timer on this program. Uh, you are a teacher of the youth. You teach the high schoolers, you teach the middle schoolers... Mm-hmm. You teach... Just them. Just them. Yeah. And you teach them music. You teach them theater. Yep. As well as, you know, whatever else the administration wants me to teach. Right. Like communications. You teach at a private school, so yes. the administration has the freedom to move you around. Sure. But I also have the freedom to request to be moved around, and they'll oblige where they can. So... Okay. It, it's symbiotic. Okay. We're going to be talking about education today, maybe griping about it a bit. Um, so we're going to try to focus more on early education, primary education. Right. Is high school, high school still counts as primary education, right? Sure, if you want. You know, it, it's all semantics. It's all semantics. We're going to be talking about semantics today. <laughs> My favorite topic. <laughs> no, uh, we met doing a musical with the Robertson County Players several weeks ago. Um, but, yeah, we, were, we, got, we got into some discussions and we realized that we both have some deep-seated concerns with the way modern education is being carried out or not. And we decided to make an ep out of it. So he has driven down here to do that. Um, what is... I mean, give us a brief introduction to your role as an educator. So, I don't know. The um, gist of it is I'm a teacher. Uh, I am a choral teacher. So I am responsible for choosing the music for teaching and building up the choral program at my school. I teach AP Music Theory. Um, AP? Yeah. I have also taught regular music theory a couple of years ago, but then we did AP this year. So you, for, get, you, got, them, you got them learning the 12-tone system. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, they hated it. I hate it, too. But It, is, it sucks. Um, so I, you know, I have that going, and then I have theater. So I have a theater class. I also direct the play and musical after school, um, and then whatever other classes they throw at me, I end up creating a curriculum for that because usually there's not one in existence for the type of class I want to teach, so I have to make my own curriculum. Interesting. Um, which, it's fine, but it's just more work. Uh, you go, you teach, and then you never go home. That's my problem. <laughs> so what got you into education? Um, well... Did you, did you have an experience teaching that you were thrust into, that you were like, oh, this actually... I, I'm good at this, or... Did you just say to yourself, I have to teach the youth? No, well, 
for me, it came from a a place of I don't know what to do next. So my senior year of college, I was a music major. I was not an education major, and we can get into that um, oh, whenever good. we want. Yes. <laughs> I was just a music major. And my senior year of college, I realized that I was not... I love the college I went to, but they didn't do a good job of helping seniors and even juniors look for potential job opportunities. And now that's not true for the entire college. That was just true for the music department and other fine art departments. Right, right, right. They just didn't have the connections. It's in West Tennessee. You know, it's not a booming metropolis of the performing arts. And so they didn't have the contacts. They didn't have necessarily the the requisite skills to say, okay, Riley, here's what you're good at. Let's find you a job in that thing. Right, and right. so I didn't have a lot of support in finding a career. And as I got closer to the end of college, I had interviewed, there were a couple of spots open at some private schools in the area, um, Northern Alabama, and then one in Middle Tennessee that were looking for choral directors. And I went and I interviewed for both of those. Um, and they both went with inside hires or parents of kids who currently went to that school and things like that. They were both qualified. Both of the people who got the jobs were highly qualified. Okay. Um, and both of them had been, had teaching degrees, had years of experience elsewhere and all of that. So it didn't hurt my feelings at all. Um, but I just didn't get a job. Right. And so I ended up calling my old high school, the principal there. I knew him pretty well. So you went the nepotism route as well. Absolutely. I thought if it works for these people, it's going to work go. for me. I, I called him up and I said, hey, do you have any openings? Not just in, in the fine arts, because I actually knew both of the people in the fine arts department, um, theater and chorus there, uh, and both of them had been there for like a couple of years or uh-huh. just a few years. Uh, and so I knew there wasn't a spot there. So I called the principal and said, do you have any other options? And he said, well, our senior English teacher is pregnant. She's going to be going on maternity leave for the entire fall semester. Would you be interested in doing senior English? <laughs> and I thought, well, of the things that aren't music that I am good at, English is one of them. So, and I also Mother knew the teacher. Tongue. Yeah. So I, I met with that teacher. I, you know, had her a couple of times in school and I met with her and I said, what are you looking at teaching, you know, and, and how does that work? And so she, I, I interviewed, she signed off on it, he signed off on it and I got the job and taught senior English. And then that led me into saying, I really like education in general, just not necessarily, I want to eventually get to where I can do chorus. And that led me uh, to the school yeah. that I'm at now. And did you start noticing things that you would like to change in the way that education is conducted? Oh, yeah. Well, I noticed that stuff when I was in high school, when I was in college, and then when I was a teacher. Precocious. A precocious young chap. No, it's every kid. Every kid sees it. No, I know, yeah. My current students constantly tell me what they think should change in the education field, and I agree with some of it. I disagree with some of it, and... I tell them that the stuff that's worth fighting for, go ahead and start fighting now while you're in high school rather than waiting until you're an adult and you forget about it. Hmm. Okay. So. Okay. But yeah, as a teacher, I did see a lot more behind the curtain um, the flaws and difficulties in the education world. Yeah. Well, what is, I think one of the big flaws, or let's, let's I think a lot of the flaws in the education systems stem from their symptoms of a problem and that is that educators many educators don't know what the purpose of education is 
And so what, I mean, what do you think the purpose of education is? I was, I was always taught by one of my, one of my, the best teachers I've ever had. He's been on this show before, Mike Linton. He taught us the first, probably the first few days of our music. He taught music theory one, two, three, and four. And the, one of the first classes in music theory one was, what is a liberal arts education? And he said, it's to create free men, liberal. Mm -hmm. What is the opposite of a free man, a slave? Slaves don't get liberal arts educations, free men do. Right. And it's to create a free thinking individual. Um, what do you think, what do you see as the purpose of I have, education? To start with a really easy, you know, softball uh, question. Yes and no, though. Um, I actually was uh, celebrating the 4th of July with a couple of teacher friends, and I posed this question to them, because I had been thinking about it, of what is education? Mm -hmm. What is the purpose? What's the point? Um, I had my opinions, and they uh, graciously gave me their thoughts. I think it comes down to two things. There are two kinds of education. The first is I want to learn a skill, a trade, an ability. I want to be proficient in X, Y, or Z thing, whether it's a job or a hobby. I need to educate myself in that thing. Sure. An education that is focused, it's driven, and it has an end goal in mind. Sure. I want to be a pianist. I need to learn how to play the piano. Right. I need to learn music theory. I need to learn preferably some of the other surrounding concepts, but essentially... Technique. Right. Study the piano. I want to be an electrician. I need to learn all of the math and science and practical application of all of that in order to get there. Right. Then there are all of the other things in the world that are there to be learned, but that you don't need. Right. For that specific thing. Gratuitous education. Right. Now, let me back up. With the focused education, I think there's also the things that any human needs to know to be able to live in society. Basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Um, basic geography, at least local, if not right, worldwide. Right, right. Um, basic science. Basic life skills, and frankly, some things that have gone by the wayside, like... Well, do you think you need school to learn that? No, but I'm saying okay, okay. education and school aren't gotcha, the same thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah, yeah. Being educated can happen at home, and we're going to get to that later, oh, I yes. guarantee. Um, get a belt upside the head. Yeah. So, a focused education is teaching the essentials for you to be successful in life, at whatever skill or trade you're going to have. Then there is the other side of education, and that's getting an education in order to expose you to other thoughts, ideas, circumstances, religions, cultures, etc., so that you are more receptive to what's out there in the world. And the way I think of it is learning the essentials is important for you because it hones your output into the world, what you give to the world. You are a productive okay. member of society. You have a job that produces some sort of good or service that our society has deemed important or useful. Yeah. Everything else is more what you receive. Yeah. I am open to new ideas. I am open to things that aren't necessarily 
my milieu, things that I could encounter in society, but not necessarily things that I need to know to survive. Sure. And so I think those two things are in constant competition. If you don't know what you're doing as an educator and if you don't know what you're doing as, as an administrator, those two things can be in competition. Yes. Because we're looking at a standardized test and we've got it in our heads that these are things that are necessary to pass a standardized test, so let's teach these things. Right. When you're never going to use those things in your future, but you need them. In scare quotes. Right. For that standardized test. Right. And well, another way of putting they think this... it's so important to teach us all of these additional things that you're never going to use in your life that, you know, sure, it would be nice to know about the Mongols. I love the Mongols. I think they're a fascinating historical group of people. Yeah. I mean, we're all descendant from them in some way. Well, supposedly. <laughs> but you don't need to know that to be a productive member of society. And so do we need X, Y, and Z points on our curricula for all of our classes to, to be right, successful. Right, right, right. Um, another way of putting the sort of productive versus receptive types of education is there is your economic education, which is the things you need to know to be a productive member of society. Right. And your uh, humanitarian education, the way that you're educated so that you are able to coexist with others in a um, beneficent and just to be, I don't, I don't want to say productive is not the right word, to, to exist, to coexist with others in a joyful and peaceful sure. manner. Sure. Yeah. And I Which think, raises a lot of questions. What things need to be taught in order for that end to be accomplished? Right. Right. Some people would say the Bible. Some people would say critical race theory. Some people would say um, Harry Potter. Absolutely. We all should learn Harry Potter. Well, I missed out on that one. That's all right. And J.K. Rowling is a turf. Um, but, but yeah, so literature, uh, the arts, unless, well, I like how you distinguish between, we, I, I like how you lumped uh, a pianist in with an electrician. Because most musicians, if they are uh, instrumentalists, mm -hmm. are technicians. They are not artists. Sure. There are, you know, a, I would say an actor even is a type of um, trade. It's, a, it's not a necessarily an art. There's a, it's a, you're an artisan. An artisan is the word I'm sure. looking for. It is an art. It's a craft. But everything can be an art if you let it. Oh, no, you've gone woo-woo. Have I? No, no, I'm just okay. joking. No, yeah, I, I see, I, yes, I know what you mean. Like, carpentry can be an art. There is can artistry, too. Yes, 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 there's, yes. Uh, there is artistry to electricians. Yeah. Depending on what you're doing. Now, if you're Art just, Deco added a lot of artistry to electricity. entering data into a Google, you know, spreadsheet or whatever, then there's not a lot of artistry to that. But sure, sure. there is artistry to how you do it. Um, there's just, there's so many things to hit here. I don't know where to go next. I know, and so few but, hammers. Oh, man. No. Um, so many nails, not enough hammers. Well, okay. So what... I guess there are... There, there's a, there's a, a critique that I would level at the education... I, I won't even say the education system. The way we do education in America and to a certain degree in the West that 
the economic education, the education that you are subjected to in order to make you a productive member of society, there is too much emphasis on that yep. to the exclusion of the, the, the receptive education. The yes and no. Humanitarian education. Yes and no. Yep. He's going to ride the fence the whole day. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes and no. Because... Are you a Libra? No. Anyway. You can keep guessing. Yes and as, no. As time goes on. Um, no, I'm not good at this. I okay. Well, you only have 11 more options, so... That's true. That's true. <laughs> Over the course of the podcast, you'll of figure it out. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Um, the problem is there's too much focus on certain aspects of what is essential and too much focus on stuff that is completely irrelevant. And nobody is sitting down and having the conversation of restructuring the education system to prioritize the necessary and the good and leave out the chaff. Give, give me a, a example well, of what you mean by that. This is opening the major can of worms, I think, but I'll go ahead and open it. Yeah. Um, where I work at graduation, and I think, yeah, well, multiple other times at the end of the year, um, the administration likes to announce what college every graduating senior is going to be attending, mm -hmm. and then how much money has been offered in scholarship Mm -hmm. to the entire senior class. I hate that. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple, well, a handful of other teachers and administrators where I teach that also hate it. Uh-huh. Um, because, and the problem is, we understand why it's happening. Every school out there is doing this. They are saying, look at all the colleges our students are going to and look at how much money they've been offered to go there. Yes. Aren't we great? Aren't we great? Because that's a draw for prospective parents to be able to say 100% or 98% or 93% of our students go to college, not just right. graduate, go to college. Right. Oh, parents love to hear that because they're wanting to send their kids there to go to college. Right. And, and is, so far, parents are, uh, this is going to change soon, but most parents that are alive today are under the impression that going to college means great economic benefits for your child. Yes, and even the young people who are disparaging of college and say that you shouldn't go because it's, you know, you get into all this debt, half of them are going to change their tune by the time they have kids. Guaranteed. Ooh, yeah, probably. Because the older well, people Well, I don't get, know. College is going to change as well. If college changes fundamentally before they have kids, they'll change their tune. But if okay. college stays the type of gauntlet of you must pass this to succeed institution that it is, they're going to suck it up and say, okay, I'll send my kid to college. Um, half of them are just whiny and not solid in their convictions. But the point is I look at a lot of these students that I have mm -hmm. every year and I, I wonder which of them should go to college? Yeah. And the fact is, some of them should not go. Right. Some of them do not exceed any expectations in an educational environment at all. They're going to go to college and have absolutely no motivation at all to do well, and they're going to flunk out. Right. I've already seen it happen multiple times with former students of mine. Yeah. Flunk out of college. Then you have students that know what they want to do. They know what they want to do, and that doesn't require a college degree. 
So True. why are we pushing them to go to college so that we can say they've been accepted and we can boost those numbers? Now, our guidance counselor, um, he and I have had lots of conversations about this. He disagrees with that fundamentally, and he pushes students to go to whatever trade school or apprenticeship they need to go to in order to succeed. Uh-huh. But he also is getting some pressure from higher up to say, well, at least have them apply to community college and get accepted so that we can say right, they've right, been right. accepted, even if they're not actually going to go, which well, is deceptive is... and still furthering the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's we, I, I did discuss this with a friend recently. I'm not sure which podcast is going to come out first. So either on the podcast before this or in the podcast to follow, um, I, com we, I compared the education system to the military industrial complex where you have a, an industry that's cropped up that must be fed and it must be, right. it must grow. We live in a capitalist consumer society. Growth is the only option. So you have a school, well, it has to grow. How does it grow? Well, you feed the, uh, you feed the secondary education. You get the accreditation right. that you're, and it wasn't and malicious. No, 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 no. It's That's not malicious at all. Beats me up about it is that if it was malicious, we could all just point fingers and say evil, vile, horribleness. Right. But it wasn't, and it, it was such a natural thing. And it got so out of control. Yeah. And that's what happens so often in our country and in every country is that you have a, a good idea or you go into something with the best of intentions and it just gets away from you. Yeah. And I think one of the, the worst aspects of our education system is the obligatory nature of it. Right. You, in America and in, in the West generally, you have to, until the age of 18 or 16, you have to be in some sort of education system where, whereas the most formative years of your life where, you're, where your brain is actually open and receptive to education are the first four years of your life. Mm -hmm. After that, you just slowly become an adult. Right. And we're forcing children to remain children until the age of 16 or 18. And if they go to college, sometimes into the, well into their 30s. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then they, and, and some delayed, of them never get out. We've delayed maturation because of our desire to keep kids in school for longer. Yes. To overeducate them. Yes. And one, one little anecdote that I, I, I taught English at uh, a, Fran a school in France when I lived in France. And it was all, I was kind of pissed because we got a stipend to teach English. And all of the people that I was going to at university with got placed in schools within the city. Mm -hmm. I got placed out in essentially the Cooperstown of Normandy. And which was actually kind of, uh, looking well, back on it, it was nice. Sure. It was nice, yeah. But there was this one kid who in all of my, and every time I had him in class, he was, I mean, he was, he was disruptive to the point that nothing got done, that he would somehow manage to turn half the class against me. And mm -hmm. The language barrier didn't help. Right. And so we went to, I, I rode there with the librarian because she lived in town. Mm -hmm. And one afternoon they had a parent, they had a teacher's uh, meeting in the break room and they were talking about this kid. And apparently he had just gone off, he had been sent off as a punishment to an internship on a farm. And he had just come back, and they were all com complaining that he, had, he hadn't improved at all. Yeah. He had gotten worse. 
And on the way home, I was like, well, how did he do on the, at the internship? Yeah. And she said, oh, he enjoyed it immensely. Uh, his, or the farmers, I guess, the people in charge of him said he did a great job. He was, he was, had a good work ethic, blah, blah, blah. And I said, why didn't he stay at the internship? And she yep. said, well, that's illegal. He has to be in school. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, oh, that's the same where I'm from. Christ. So that was an eye-opening experience to me. And I, that was the first time I said, wait, we don't need to oblige education of children. Right. And like I said, it came about from a decent place of for our country to succeed, let's encourage all students or all children to get a basic education so that they all have a general understanding of basic history, basic math, basic science, basic language skills, and then making it... They found, of course, that there were all of these people, especially in rural areas, who weren't sending their kids to school because they needed to work on the farm. We right. need the hands on the farm. So they said, let's make it mandatory. Yeah. And so then all these kids go, and at first it was a little relaxed where you could take off certain seasons to help on the farm or whatever. I mean, even when um, I was in middle school, sure. I mean, a third of the kids were gone yeah. for several weeks in the fall for harvest. Yeah. But. but then by making it mandatory, what happens when you make anything mandatory is demand goes up, but supply has not gone up. <laughs> Yeah. And that's just basic economics. If every kid has to go to school, we need more school buildings. We need more teachers. But we don't have that many school buildings or teachers. We've got to build them and we've got to train them. But if you're training more teachers, that means that you're going to be incentivizing people to come teach who weren't going to teach on their own. Right. Which who, means you're getting lower quality teachers. Yes. It's like forcing people to be musicians. Right. You're going to get... no one's doing. But you're going to get a whole bunch of Taylor Swifts. Exactly. And... Or worse. Or worse, and that's... Billie Eilish's. Oh, well. Hmm. And so it dilutes, by forcing everyone to get an education, it actually dilutes the potency of each individual education. More kids get one, it means less. Yeah. It's not as effective. Then, when you see all of these kids graduating from high school, or most of these kids graduating from high school, all these parents started to realize, my kid's not getting a job... Because it used to be that having a high school degree would help you get a job. Yeah. I mean, back yeah. in the day, kids were leaving high school and immediately becoming teachers. Yeah. But then parents were realizing my kids aren't getting any better jobs because they're, we're flooding the market with high school graduates. Right. Let's send them to college. Right. And so then more and more people started sending their kids to college and more and more kids started going to college. What do you need? More colleges, more professors. It dilutes potency of it and you rinse and repeat and now people are discussing let's make college anthony free. burgess in an interview with william f buckley said and this was in the 72 i believe said he could see an endless vista of ever super universities and super super sure. universities and that would extend a person's education and credentialism right. all the way up to the end of their life a master's is today what a bachelor's was 30 years ago. And Less not than even, that, maybe. yeah, 20 years ago. And a doctorate is ago. today what a master's meant. Yeah. And they're, you know, it's, it's a vicious cycle. I look at, I don't have my master's at all. Uh, never, you know, 
had any desire to go get my... I went for a year and a half and I dropped out. I went for a semester to get a, math, a uh, master's in business administration and dropped out because mm. that was a terrible decision. But that's another story. Um, I went... Uh, well, okay, let's, let's discuss this then because I went under the false impression that I was going to get a master's in French. Turns out I was getting a master's in teaching with an emphasis in foreign languages... And my foreign language just so happened to be French. So there was one course, no, two courses I took. One was the history of the French language, and one was a literature course where I actually got to learn, mm -hmm. you know, the origins of French and Latin and got to read uh, a very saucy book by uh, Romain Gary. But the education courses, the education classes, I mean... I don't know how they expected 26, 27-year-olds to sit and listen to the kind of information that, was, that should have been being taught to 12-year-olds. Mm. I mean, it was mind-numbing. One of the classes, the professor, there were five of us in the class, and the professor said, this is going to be an interesting class because you are going to write the syllabus over the course of the... Class. And I said, no, I will do no such thing, especially not with these retards. So I dropped out. Well. So education degrees. They are, uh, as has been in the news recently in Tennessee, some of our local government think that Education departments at schools are the least useful. Um, frankly, I can say that the, on average, the students in college who are in education, in the education department, scored the lowest on their standardized tests in high school. Yeah. Those same people tend to have the highest GPAs graduating from college. These are not academically rigorous. Right, right, right. At all. Um, it boggles the mind, or at least my mind, and I have a pretty spry mind. It boggles my mind why anyone needs four years to be taught how to teach. Right. I don't have an education degree. I took one, two education classes in college. One was an elective my freshman year, and one was necessary for my music degree. It was, it was music for educators. Um, okay. And that was specifically for elementary age. We were learning how to teach music to ele ele elementary age kids. Now that, I'm, I could I, use a couple of weeks But of I graduated college and went straight into teaching senior level English with <laughs> right, a music right. degree. And I was successful at it. Now, I'm not saying that I'm a perfect teacher by any stretch of the imagination, but I haven't been fired yet. <laughs> I haven't been sued. And the kids, That's a good rubric. Yeah. And the kids leave the class having learned something and, frankly, usually having enjoyed themselves to a degree. Mm -hmm. And I did not have an education degree for that, and I didn't even have an English degree for that. Right. It comes down to 
educators are successful when they are good educators. Yes. But you don't become a good educator by getting an education degree. No. And you, frankly, you see a lot of people coming out of college with an education degree who are, in fact, worse than they would have been if you just let them alone because they have had their heads so filled with the effluvium of what passes for educational doctrine today. Right. It's like the meme with the lady with all the... Yes. The math equations around her head. Like that's And what is very frustrating is I was told I was told, for example, by my intro to teaching foreign languages professor that music is not a good tool to use to teach foreign languages to people. Now I I think I thought I misheard him because he was Chinese and he still spoke with a pretty thick accent, and I was like Hold so because I actually I learned French Mm -hmm. and I learned it fluently and I listened to a lot of French songs and they actually taught me a lot of different turns of phrases that I wouldn't have learned and the the a lot of words stuck in my head because the melody stuck in my head right and he was like no no it doesn't work well and I was like well no 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 and a lot of people started objecting to him he goes no 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 there's studies. And we just all stared at him. Did he cite any of them? No, he did. Okay, well, there you go. If anybody's ever going to say there are studies, cite them. Let me know. Right. Also, if anyone's going to ever tell you that a mimetic tool doesn't work, when you know for a fact that it does. I will say there's a possibility that music is less effective for East Asian cultures because their musical tonal system is different from ours. It might be that... For whatever reason, that doesn't jive with the memory as well as Western music. Sure, but, but I don't think he was... Uh, you can't just have a blanket statement and say that all music is not useful for right, learning right. languages or anything. Music is useful for learning anything. Yes. I can sing half of the stupid Countries of the World song by Yakko Warner from Animaniacs <laughs> because it's catchy. Right. I didn't want to sit down and memorize all those stupid countries, but here we are. Stupid so countries. They're Not great. shithole countries. Well, half of them don't exist countries. anymore. So. Right. Well, not half, but anyway... Czechoslovakia. <laughs> but, no, music is, is highly useful if used properly. But, but um, my point was, this is the kind of stuff you get taught in right. education departments, which is actually an impediment to, or not an impediment, but it's, an, it's a counterintuitive. It's so, um, and I don't know if other fields of study are like this, but the educational field is so prone to trends. Uh-huh. Um, constantly coming out with this method or that effect or this theory or whatever that is the Mozart effect, highly effective in classrooms, and then they push for everyone to incorporate it into our classrooms. When you ask a teacher who's been teaching for 15 years, who said, "I've never used this in my life," and my kids are scoring well on the AP tests or passing the ACT with flying colors or whatever, right? And they say this is it. Work, this method might work well for certain students, but we don't need to pretend that everyone needs to use this. I mean, um, you have this. I think it was little man syndrome that the educational scholars started to feel a few decades ago, where they thought <laughs> all these other fields have their own vocabulary. You go into the medical field, and they have their own vocabulary that you have to. You take whole classes just learning words and terms. Yes. And the same is true with the engineering field, and the same is true with the music field. 
All yeah. of these fields that have all of these terms, but if you sit in on it, you have no idea what they're talking about, but not Jargon, education. Jargon, we call that. Jargon, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But education didn't have that. And so they thought people are looking down their noses at the educational field and they are disparaging it and saying it's not as highbrow because we don't have our own jargon. So let's invent a jargon. Interesting. And so they started coming up with all of these terms and ideas that mean very basic things. Right. But sound pompous and, you know, arrogant. Right. And so now we're expected to learn all this garbage. A friend of mine graduated from college two years ago with an education degree and when she was going through her senior year of college, she kept talking about, well, I have, I have to get this, this, this in order for a presentation and that, that, you know, we're learning about these things and discussing that. And I'm trying to incorporate this into my syllabi. All these terms, I had no idea what they were. <laughs> and I said, I graduated from college not too long ago. Granted, I wasn't in the education department, right, but right, I don't right. know what any of this means. And I said, does this make you a more effective teacher? And she said, probably not, but we have to know it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's well, and now they've turned the critical theories in on the education. Right. They've adopted all this stuff. And right. so they're this new blossoming of uh, language jargon right. is taking place. Well, language is changing so rapidly nowadays with the, um, with the growth of the internet. People right, are communicating so quickly. Right. It's just sped that up so quickly that people are... Um, I didn't know what a chonk was until like two weeks ago. Isn't that like a chubby dog? Or, or cat. Okay. I, I am more up to date on the slang well, because than most people because I'm a teacher. Yeah. But when you start throwing all the new terms from the critical race theory... Ideas, yeah. as well as the educational field is always coming out with new garbage. And, you know, when we first had our, uh, our well, this two or three years ago, we had a, a professional development uh, day on differentiation. And I said, what? What is that? What am, I, am I supposed to know what that means? <laughs> and it turns out that all, all it means is when you're teaching a concept in your classroom, use different methods to teach it that appeal to the different learning styles of different students. It means uh, don't just hand out worksheets. Right. Don't just lecture. Don't just do hands-on activities. Right, you right, need right. to have all of those things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But and Did I don't you need know a how, word for that. I don't know, and I don't know how old the word the word differentiation, how long that's been around in the educational field, meaning that. But it was new to me. Yeah. And there are so many terms that are coming out that are new to me that I think, why do we need? To say this. Right. But right. it's because people are saying, well, we want people to take the educational field more seriously. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to treat it like the other. But again, if you could walk out of high school back in the, you know, mid-1800s, walk out of high school and into a classroom where you're teaching children that are like, many of them are two years younger than you, then is this something that we desperately need four years of training right. to be qualified to do? Right. Well, yeah. And what, so what do you think the state's role in education is? Because you teach at a private school. Yes. Um, obviously, there are institutions that fund the school at which you teach, just as 
the state institutions fund. When you say institutions, you mean the pockets of the parents who send their kids to my school? The pockets of the parents, the um, religious or private organizations that give donations. We don't have a whole lot of that. All okay. things considered, there generally, are other private schools that do. Generally Ours speaking, not so much. let's just say generally, you know, sure. Father Ryan gets sure. a lot of money from okay. the Diocese of Nashville. Sure. Maybe not, uh, just private schools generally. Right. They, they do get funding, yeah. Are also funded by institutions. Yeah. Um, what do you see the role of the state in education being? Do you think, because in my mind, I, I always kind of oscillate between this, you know, yes, there need to be standards, a state is a good apparatus for setting standards. I think... And yet... I think, ultimately... Well, let me start here. I will never be president. I have no desire to ever be president. I think it is a thankless job and a horrible job. You didn't realize we're launching your campaign with this. Ha ha, ha ha. LOL to the world. I will not win. Um... If I somehow accidentally stumbled my way into that office, which evidently is completely possible. Um, Happened twice in a row now. The first thing I would do, day one, is I would say, we are going to be phasing out the Department of Education. Cool. Now, I'm not radical enough to say we're just going to abolish it right now and put all those people out of jobs immediately. I would say we need to scale back, and over the course of the four years of my presidency, we would eventually phase that whole department out. But the fact is, if Why? you look at the standards, if you look at the quality of education that the average student got before the Department of Education existed, it was higher than it is today. Which was, when did, when did that damn thing come about? Oh, boy. You're asking the wrong person. The 70s? Right. It was the 70s, I think. I'll fact check, but continue. Okay. Um, you can edit that out if no. I'm wrong. We don't ever do that. <laughs> 1979, fairly recent. Yeah, uh, our educational quality has gone down. Yeah. And pretty rapidly. Yeah. Um, because in order for there to be a national standard, we have to assess the national standards, which means we have to have tests that assess if you're reaching the national standard, which means we have to have standardized tests. Mm-hmm. And that means that teachers are going to say, okay, well, if I want to succeed and show that all of my kids pass or most of my kids pass or whatever percent of my kids pass. If I want to keep my job, if I want to get tenure, I need I have to, have... to make sure that they pass this test. I'm going to teach to the test. Yeah. And then everything starts going out, you know, out the door because then they start saying, well, okay, kids aren't reaching this level. Let's lower our standards, lower our standards, lower our standards. Yeah. Abolishing that throws it back to the states. I love throwing things to the states. Let the state handle the state's issue. This is the wrong week to say that, but sorry, all my fe- I'm my three female listeners out there. Um, I know that's that's a topic for another day. No. But I believe a country the size of the United States cannot, in good conscience, expect all United States citizens to be held to the same standards when they are from completely different locations geographically, culturally, religiously. Economically. Economically. And I do believe that there are some things that we want all Americans to have access to, but 
by creating competition among the states for better education, you actually raise the level of education overall. Mm -hmm. Creating a competitive environment forces all of these schools to you know, raise their standards. Now, does that yeah. mean that some schools are going to fall by the wayside, that some states are going to fall by the wayside and their schools are going to be worse? Sure. Sure. But overall, they're going to get better because of the healthy competition between states. You say, okay, right. Nebraska is just killing it in the education department. Let's look at what they're doing and see if we need to implement that in Tennessee. Right, right. And Mississippi my, I can the, say... I have the exact same feelings about, the, about healthcare. Like, sure. I'm not, I'm not opposed to state... Or like a, a public option as far as healthcare goes, just not a national one. Right. It's too big. It's competition too clumsy. breeds quality most, most of the, the time. time. <laughs> so, and the thing is, too, and I, I don't have any, you know, I'm not a prophet or a, a seer, but thank God. I believe if we were to throw it back to the states <laughs> that within 10 years or 20 years, even the state that's ranking the lowest probably still be ranking higher than we are today. Yeah. Overall. And that's important. But with that being said, then we bring it down to what you said is what's the state's role? Well, the state's role ultimately is to be making sure that each child has access to an education that can prepare them to be a decent member of society. I don't know that we should be forcing all students to go to school until they graduate or turn 18. Right. Uh, yeah. I think there's a bigger issue there. Um, and it's, you can't untangle this ball of worms without killing a few worms. Well, you've already gotten worms all over my floor. I sure so. have. And, and there are more to, to be had, but it's just a complicated thing. And if you want me to go back to what I think the root of that problem is, I can... Let's dig up the root. Home life. Uh, you already what? mentioned that children learn the most from birth until the age of four. Right. Uh, studies show that there's a period in a child's life where if they are exposed to enough varying words and a big vocabulary, they can be learning upwards of... I think like 10 to 15 words a day, yeah. new words. Yeah. Because for about a year, they're just soaking it all in and their brains are receptive to that. What's happening is these children are being raised by parents who are putting them in school at the age of 18 months. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, teach my child, teach my child, teach my child. But they're also expecting these people to raise their child. And that's my yes. biggest issue with the educational field today is that we are expected to raise people's children. I don't see that nearly as much at a private school, and I am thankful beyond belief for that. Right. That most of our kids are coming there, and they have at least a decent understanding of manners and behavior and things like that. But friends of mine who work in the public school, it's chaotic. It's yeah. horrifying. But if a child were to grow up in a household where their parents read to them 15 minutes a day, every day, growing up, study after study after study shows, and I can provide those if you want, uh, or you can out. Google no, it, they're everywhere, show that those kids score better on their tests, they perform better in school, they're better behaved, overwhelmingly. Right. Now, somebody could say, well, 
you look at a family where the parent has the time to sit and read to their kid for 15 minutes a day. That means they're making enough money to provide a decent lifestyle for that kid. Eh, that doesn't hold a lot of water. There's a little truth to that, that you're going to have a kid who's economically a little bit more sound, possibly. You know, mom's not working two jobs to provide for their kids, so she has the time to sit and read 15 minutes of Dr. Seuss to her small child or 15 minutes of the Magic Treehouse to whatever. Sure, you can make that argument. Well, I will kind of make that argument because it's not that it's one of the problems that I think all of this, if we want to dig out the root of the root, um, is that our society has been transformed beyond all recognition by the industrial revolution and yep. the modernization of society to the point that we've, and, and, and to the point that one, we've industrialized our school system. Yep. We've modeled it basically off of uh, the Prussian military, which is what prisons and factories are also modeled off of, which is why they resemble, and hospitals, which is why they all resemble one another so much. And, but, since the 50s, since the 60s, and the sexual revolution, we have thrown women into what uh, Elizabeth Warren, oddly enough, called the two-income trap, right. which is now our economy is so structured that both father and mother right. have to work to be able to provide for the household. And I'm not saying they don't have time to sit down and read them a book. My, both of my parents worked. My mom was a nurse, so she worked some very odd hours mm -hmm. sometimes. They read to me. Right. Like, I, I, the biggest fish in the sea, I, I, that was one of them. I vaguely recall these. Ricky Ticky Tavi. Oh, I got my Ricky Ticky Tavi. He was so cute. Big cheeks. Um, but I'm not saying that it makes it so that parents can't teach, can't raise their children. It takes one of the, it takes both of the parents out of the house, though. Right. That, opens that backs up to what's the root of the root and then you look modern at industrial society ted kaczynski thank you what other studies show is and i, I don't know who your listeners are so i might be about to step on more toes but hey okay. i, I, step, I on. step on their toes every day a loving two-parent household mm -hmm. statistically consistently outperforms a one-parent household. Does yeah. that mean that there are no successful single parents raising their kids? Yeah. No. I know people who have been raised by a single parent whose kids turned out wonderfully. Same. But statistically speaking, teaching people that being in a committed relationship should precede having children right. results in better outcomes. And we've gotten away from that where we're, like you said, the sexual revolution where, oh, you know, it's great to have sex whenever. Yeah. With whomever. Yeah. And however. Yeah. And the, the feminist movement, not the original feminist movement, but the feminist movement as it sort of has become. Second and third wave. Sure. Is saying a woman should be able to, you know, provide for her own family. Okay. That's. Fine, except when you're saying that I don't need no man. Right. Well, people raising a family need to have a committed partner. Really, long term, yeah. most people do. There are super women and super men out there who can raise 
two or three kids on a single parent income and be there for their kids and give them the time and the attention that they need. But that's not the, the norm. No, no it's, it's, it's... And when somebody comes at me and says, well, I came from that kind of household and look how I turned out. I say, great, you're the exception, right. not you're the, the rule. You're the exception. There's studies. Right. We have studies we right. can cite. We can cite And they're not it. Chinese either. Um, but that... That's actually the single child. <laughs> Uh, Many times, this yeah. institution. Um, well, yeah, and 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 not just that. Like, you know, women. The the whole feminist trope of you know women should be able to provide for their families. Women should be able to be able to provide right. for their families. There should be there no should, social obligation at there all. There should be no social stigma against a woman who stays at home and raises right. children while her husband goes out there and does the hard work of bringing home the bacon, right. like. Or if you're vegan, the soy wonder beans. burger or whatever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it I, there's there's a utopian fantasy world that most liberals live in, and by liberals I mean Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, I mean modern liberal right dem- democratic people right. Damn, all of these words have changed. Oh yeah, all of their meanings. That's, since the, that's a topic for another day. The, 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 and up. the institutions we have now sort of foster and breed and reinforce this. Okay, we have to institutionalize the education system. The education system is now responsible for rearing our children from the age of four to the age of right. eighteen. Uh, because the parents have to go work in the economic sector, and they will be home to f- they will be able to feed the children, but we will take care of the rearing. And yep. it's I I wanted to qu- quote. Oh, this was dang. This was this should have been. I am going to force it. It should have been at the uh, obligatory <laughs> education. Ah, uh, shoehorn it in. But this this great book called De-Schooling Society by Ivan Illich, a priest from, he wrote this in the 70s, I believe. He said, the first article of a Bill of Rights for a modern humanist society would correspond to the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The state shall make no law with respect to the establishment of education. There shall be no ritual obligatory for all. And he's, I mean, as the title suggests, is interested in not just um, a reform of our schoolings, but, a, I mean, essentially a, a complete reversal of values as to what we consider. He, he, he thinks this schools need to be done away with. The way we school, mm-hmm. uh, the way we educate needs to be massively reformed. Everyone should be doing it pro bono. Everyone should be sort of trading education with each other. Um, from the cradle to the grave. So let me ask you a hypothetical. Hypotheticals. Love them. Mm, I don't, but I have one here anyway. Let's say the state gets out of education entirely. What we'll see is children in rural areas getting less of an education, a classical education, and working on the farm. Uh-huh. Children of lower-income families going to work at a younger age. Um, not an obscenely younger age, but... Right, right, right. We still have child labor laws. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I say get rid of those, too. Uh, we have... We'll start to see groups of people in America stopping their education at various times 
based on the society that they're growing up in. Well, our, we are also going to see kids in the United States having vastly different styles of education based on where they are, mm-hmm. um, based on what the values of that area tend to be. Right. And from the standpoint of, well, what you need to be a productive member of society isn't what somebody in Southern California needs or New York or Nebraska. So our education should be vastly different based on that's fine, except for the fact that what your author there didn't expect was the boom of the internet. Now these kids have access to everybody and everything all at once. So doesn't that mean that there should be some sort of standard expectation on the less necessary stuff and more um, how to be a receptive person to various cultures. We didn't get so it out that of that. So that last part again, there should be standards on... It used to be that if you grew up and you went to school and you worked in the farm, you weren't going to travel more than maybe 25, 50 right, miles right, right, outside right, right. of your hometown and you couldn't communicate with people except from the newspaper Mm -hmm. and then we add TV and radio and then we add of course the internet. And now all of a sudden you are daily for hours a day interacting with people of all sorts of lifestyles. So my question is a, do we need to make sure that these people, these children still get the coverage that they need on what it takes to be a receptive person or do we let it happen and then we start to see the internet sort of segregate itself off into cultural pockets just like the world has done? Um, I would say that the second is probably more um, realistic, uh, sounds more organic. Um, I mean, if everyone is interacting on the internet the way they are now, when this cataclysmic uh, de-schooling of society occurs, the, I, the you know, non-binary um, Latinx child that grew up in lower Manhattan is, why, why would they not, you know, it sounds like, you know, the kid that grew up on a Nebraska cornfield might not understand the LGBTQ person that grew up in Brooklyn well, but the, and vice versa right. though. Right. Yeah. And so I don't see any, like, I don't think, you know, we need to but ram a bunch of it um, is... accepting literature down the Nebraska kid's throat and not expect the same from the, right. from the New Yorker. But then, so a couple of my very good friends are English teachers, and I taught English for a semester uh-huh. as well. Um, and we've had conversations often, and they teach high school English, freshman through senior. Um, the question comes up from students all the time, why are we reading this? Uh-huh. Why is it relevant? Why do I need... And, of course, we hear this all the time of why do I need to know this in the real world. Right. But the English teachers get it a lot because these kids hate to read. Right. Loathe it with every right. cell in their body. And so these English teachers constantly hear, why do we have to know this? Why do we have to read this? And the answer that they give is one that I think it's the best answer you can give, though these high schoolers don't appreciate it, and that is... These people are nothing like you. 
if you read this and we talk about why they made the decisions they made and talk about the pattern of speech or the lifestyles that they lived or the culture that they were a part of, then you, when you go into the world and experience those people, are going to be more receptive, be more empathetic. Yeah. And it's teaching empathy. Um, I agree with that. And so in that regard, there is an argument to be made about having some sort of standards somewhere that teaches people are better people when they're more empathetic people. There, there's just no getting around that. Well, there's, Humans You can are, overdo it. But then it's not empathy. It's delusion. <laughs> okay, okay. True empathy. Humans are better people mm. when they are empathetic. I, I, again, I think it. there's... No, fight I, me. I think there's... I, I think one of the major problems that we, we see with um, American society and, to a certain extent, European society is we have become... Empathy is, a, is, an, is an emotion that is, sits on the more feminine end of the nah. gender spectrum. Okay. Women, women are much better at it. Sure, yes. Uh, women are much more empathetic with each other than men are with each other. Women are much more... Well, there's the, the, the sex barrier that women can't quite understand the mind of a man sometimes, but they're still more empathetic to men than men are to women. Sure. I think one of the reasons we're seeing a lot of this um, safetyism and wokeism and these is because of an excess of empathy I think... and an excess of feminine uh, energy in our society. Okay. I'll push back on that a little bit. I think that the, in that regard, empathy has become acceptance. I think a lot of people are looking at empathy as I'm okay with what you're doing or I support what you're doing or how you're living or who you're being because I can empathize. Empathy by itself does not mean that acceptance follows. Okay. It doesn't condone right. what you're And that's one thing I love about sensing in the acting, other person. About theater. Uh-huh. Um, so I'll go off on this little tangent for fun. Tangent away. Um, this past spring, we did Into the Woods at my school. Uh, I directed it. And the young woman who played the baker's wife mm-hmm. in Into the Woods had never been in a show in her life, never acted. And... Um, Great voice, great audition. She did a great job, but she came to me and she said, I'm, I struggle with, she said, I like her. I like who she is and that she's the one that's pushing her husband to go out. You know, she's wanting to go out with him and get all of the objects to reverse the curse, et cetera, et cetera. If you're not mm-hmm. familiar with Into the Woods, then you're thinking that I've lost my mind. No, no, um, it's fine. But. They made a movie of it. Everyone knows oh, it now. Yeah. Hmm. In act two, uh, she's gotten separated from her husband and a prince comes along. And he seduces her. And it's implied that they have sexual relations. Now, in our version, we just, they kissed. Um, right, right, right. But you can play, either way, she cheated on him. And this young lady came to me and she said, I, I like this character, except I cannot like her because of what she did. <laughs> yeah, right. And I said, that's a good thing, that you can look at what she did and you can say, I disagree with that. And still play the character. I said, so now we've got to sit down and we've got to say, what led her to make that decision? 
Because mm-hmm. if you if you know the show at all, as soon as that's over, as soon as he leaves, she has this whole song about processing what she did. And she comes right, to the right. conclusion that she shouldn't have done it, but she's not going to pretend it didn't happen because she learned from it. Right. And right. I said, so what decisions led up to her deciding to cheat on her husband? Because she, you know, yeah. he didn't rape her. Right. She right. agreed it was consensual. And... He raped her with his ravishing good looks. Sure. Um, okay. And so... He was in a position of power. Uh, so she, she and I talked about, you don't have to agree with her decision, but let's talk about why men and women cheat on their spouses. What leads them to that? It's not just, I hate my spouse. I want to make a bad choice. Here we go. Right. It's, I'm caught unawares by someone that's attractive and I'm, my spouse isn't fulfilling me and I'm in a position of need or I'm in fear like she was at the time, lost in the woods or whatever. And so she learned how to empathize with the baker's wife. By the end of the show, she still did not like that decision and I don't blame her. Right, right, right. But being able to look at why would my character make this decision teaches you empathy. And that's one of the reasons I love acting so much is it forces you or it challenges you to empathize with people who aren't like you. And I think that that's an important thing because even though you don't accept it, you don't have to accept it, you can understand them better. Right. And so that's where I think the distinction between empathy and apathy, empathy and acceptance yeah. come in. And you th- do you think empathy is like a, a faculty of the imagination? Like, because all of this kind of, I mean, the same, the, what you just said about acting, what we're talking about, about literature, whatever, are ways of... Uh, I think it has to be, doesn't it? Educating your imagination or exercising your imagination. Right. You have to imagine yourself right. in someone else's shoes. Right. It's saying... You have to walk two moons. Right. It's saying, I don't know what this is like. Mm-hmm. Let me pretend. Yeah. It's... It, it. I mean, I think definitionally it has to be the imagination because then right. otherwise it's sympathy, right? Sympathy isn't sympathy. Right. I've been there. I know what you're going through. Right. I feel for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to wrap it up here soon, but, um, Time flies. what role do you think that faith plays in education? Because <clears throat> you do teach at a religiously affiliated school. Yes. Um, most private schools are in some way religiously affiliated. Um, and obviously public schools are not only barred from being religiously affiliated but have in the past 30 years or so really come under fire for any even expression of religion within their halls. Right. Um, I have a difficult time with that topic having grown up in the church um, and teaching at a religious school. Um, I'm not as confident in making broad statements for the public school system Overall, but I will say, um, as long as the parents are aware what the predominant faith is at the school, they tend to be pretty okay with sending their kids there. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of students who go to my school who never attend church, mm-hmm. and many of them don't believe in God. Mm-hmm. But we have chapel, we have Bible classes. Many teachers lead a prayer at the beginning of their class or something like that. Um, their parents don't tour the school oblivious to the fact that we're affiliated with Christianity. Right. They choose to send their kid there knowing full well that their kid is going to hear specific 
things that are held by the Christian faith. And will be held to a, a disciplinary standard. At times, that is yes. More, not, I, I want to say more rigorous than public school, but certainly oh, sure. takes into account. Sure, it can be. Uh, dogma. Yes. Um, but the fact that we have so many parents who say, you know what? I don't go to church and my kid doesn't go to church, but maybe this will do them some good spiritually as well as educationally. I think that's wonderful. Or these parents who say, I don't go to church, my kid doesn't go to church, and I do not believe one red cent in God, but this is a better school than what else is out there. Right. I have no problem with that either. Yeah. And so I think that's something that we would start to see more of if we saw the power be thrown back to the states and if the states threw the power to the schools, yeah. you would see some of these religious schools growing and parents saying, this is a better school than the public school that I'm zoned for. Yeah. I'm going to send my kid here. And frankly, if, and, and I find it, I don't know, insulting that people think that I would, you know, balk at the idea of a, a Islamic school or Jewish school or Wiccan school. Well, if a school came along that was Wiccan, associated, affiliated with a particular religion or belief, and the parents say, this school is providing a better education for my kid, and I don't believe that what my kid is learning at that school is fundamentally harming them religiously or, or whatever, doctrinally. Right. You wouldn't send your kid I'm to a Luciferian send, school. Sure. <laughs> I, then my kid can go there. I have no problem with that. Uh-huh. I, yeah. I don't see why that's... A major issue. Right. Now, if you start to open the topic of uh, vouchers or, as the Supreme Court ruled with that state in Maine, allowing federal funding to go to private schools that are affiliated with a certain religion, mm-hmm. that's a different argument. And I have thoughts on that, and that's fine. But from a no, I mean, in, yeah, I mean, in just an educational sense. Right. Not I think that faith enhances education when used appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it can get in the way. So many times well, sure, faith yeah, does yeah. get in the way. Yeah. Um, one of the things, so this upcoming year, every five years, private schools are uh, required to be re-accredited. And accreditation means that an outside organization comes in and makes sure that you're following, basically that you're meeting the national standards. Right. And that you're meeting the standards of religious schools. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they expect from us is to incorporate our faith in Christianity and scripture into our curriculum. And for some people, that's super easy. You teach a Bible class, you're good to go. You teach a history class, it's not really that hard to fold the history of the Bible into whatever. But when you're looking at a math class, those poor math teachers are constantly like, the best I can do is pray at the beginning of class and put a poster up that has a scripture on it. (laughs) There's not a lot of math in the Bible. No. From a choral standpoint, it's pretty easy well, for me you know, because I seven do... seven and 12 and three, well, you know, Sure, let's always do a numbers. unit on the symbolism of numbers. Whoa, that would be exhausting. That would be fun. It would be fun the first time you do it, but the 17th time you're in a math class. Well, sure. well, here we go again. But I think faith can be vital. It can also be a hindrance. Yeah. Um, it just depends on how it's being used and if the people who are there are receptive to it and okay with it. Yeah. I think it's I think it's important. Um, I don't necessarily think it has to come. It needs to come from the educational institution. No, it doesn't. It needs to come from the parents originally. The parents. But if the parents and the community, yes. But if the parents um, aren't going to, and they say, "Well, here's and here's 
an educational system that has it. Right. It's better than nothing. But I what I that. never understood was why in a public school we were told to read the Iliad and the Odyssey, but we were not allowed to read forced to read the the Old Testament. Well, some schools it, it's not even not forced, they're not allowed. Right. No, you you're not allowed. Right. Uh, now, some of them have we classes. We weren't forced to read the Quran. We weren't forced to read um, the Tao Te Ching. I don't know why I tried to pronounce it Chinese. I should get, I I should get uh, Bridget up here to do it. <laughs> hey, Bridget, um, say this thing. We do have a friend downstairs cooking us some spicy Indian food right now. She broke in while we were recording. So actually, we're going to hop off here in just a second and go eat that. But um, But yeah, I think there is... And I was, you know, I went through my atheist phase. I went through my atheist libertarian phase. Mm. I came back to the church, still have a very healthy distrust for the Catholic church as an institution. As I think any, any, any truly faithful person would have of any, you know, worldly institution, whether it's faith-based or not, but it, I do think there is a component of faith that is completely just has been excised from schooling, public schooling, obviously, that is, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, you can chalk up a lot of these, you know, surging suicide rates among teens to uh, social media. And oh, obviously, obviously that is the main driving force. But if, if there was some, it's, I, I can't help but think if there was some, they had, they had some faith to lean, lean upon, they might not be well, offing I, themselves in droves. I think a lot of it, and I know we're trying to wrap up, but uh, a lot of it is that people have replaced religion with something else. Oh, well, no. Uh, and that... You cannot do away with the religious instinct. Right. It is Humans, a, it by is nature, human. want to worship something. Yes. Um, whether it's overt or covert, we right. want to worship something. And we've seen this throughout all of human history. I also taught history for a few years, if you want to um, challenge me on that. Uh, <laughs> but we want to worship something. And <clears throat> with this growing distaste, there was so many people our age, a little bit older, a little bit younger coming along who said, I had a bad experience in the church because they told me what to do. Right. They tried to force their beliefs on me and I don't want that. Okay, so they leave the church, but they replace their faith with something less meaningful. Um, and yes, don't and get me wrong. And someone else is going to force their beliefs on you. Sure. You can't step out of one society and not fall into another. Right. It happens. That's And it's happening everywhere and I see it yeah. with these kids. But the fact of the matter is... Kim Kardashian is forcing her beliefs on you now. Every politician. Every politician. Well, every celebrity. Right now, our, it's, we, we live in this weird, it's the secular state, the adults worship the politicians and the kids worship the celebrities. And the celebrities worship the politicians. And, and the so celebrity, really by, Yeah, the celebrities just sort of, I don't, ugh. The celebrities are... Worship themselves. <laughs> well, yeah. Some of them. But it's, it's sad and, and it is disheartening that faith has been so thoroughly stripped from education. Um... Because it deprives kids of a chance to start to build their own. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so many of these kids become adults with no faith, not because they don't have faith, but because they've never been given a chance to see what faith can be. Right, right. And I, I'm not saying that every church has it perfect, and I, I am not going to hide from the atrocities that have been committed in various congregations and beliefs. Sure. Um, but faith is integral to humanity, and there's a growing percentage of Americans who are atheist, um, but are treating that almost like its own religion. Oh, they, no, it's a, it's a religion. <laughs> They're celebrating the fact that we no longer worship a God, and they think that it's all, it's embarrassing to believe in a God, right. any sort of God, when you look at thousands and thousands of years of human history, and everyone believed in gods. <laughs> it's some sort of God. You still believe in a God. Yeah. It just might be the leader of your party of choice, yeah. or that movie star, but you believe in a God, somebody that has more power, more influence, more reign over your life um, or yourself. Yep. But yep. that's where we're going. Well, hopefully... No, I'm not even going to... There's hope for the future. There. there is. There is hope for the future. But that's for next episode. Yeah. <laughs> keep, them, keep them chasing the dragon. The dragon of hope. Ladies and gentlemen, that might be the name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Run on over to patreon.com slash neardarkradio. We are putting more and more episodes behind the paywall because nefarious scheming people with, with nasty little ears are tuning in to hear what I have to say just to bite me in the ass. And I don't want that to happen, so I'm trying to be more selective with who can listen to the episodes so if you want to keep receiving as many episodes as you used to, you will need to give me money or at least your email address so I can put you on the sub stack because you don't actually have to pay. I don't care. This isn't my job. Um, do you have anything you want to plug? Man, no. I... Okay. No. All right. Well... Be good people. Hey. Read to your kids 15 minutes a day. Read to them. Bah. Careful the things you say, children will listen. See? It all ties in. Mm-hmm. That's Sondheim, folks. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>